Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey everybody, we're here with, uh, this is Jason, and I'm here with my beautiful wife, Miss Banji. Say hello. Hi. And uh, talking to Paul Axton, Dr. Axton. Oh yes, Reverend, Reverend Doctor. Reverend Doctor. <laughs> The right Reverend Doctor Paul <laughs> Vincent Axton. Yes, yes. The purpose of this conversation is to kind of just discuss and have some, have some dialogue regarding the Netflix special that uh, we just watched called "The Social Dilemma." Uh, I, wa- I think I was the first one to watch it, and then shared it with Vanji. And a lot of folks are talking about it right now. And then uh, we talked to Paul and Faith and said, "You guys need to watch this." And we just decided that this was worthy of a conversation. So if you haven't watched it yet, The Social Dilemma is a documentary about the effect of social media and the way social media has shaped uh, the public dialogue in some really bad, bad ways and led us to a very divided public. And of course, we're always divided because there's people have different opinions about things, and that's normal. We're always going to have different opinions. But when I say divided here, we really are divided not just about what we think should be, but what we think is. And I think it was Robbie Zacharias years ago who one time said, you can't do ethics unless you have ontology first. And right now, we're a nation that it's there's no agreement on, on what reality actually is reality. We're really at the bottom of this, and I'm going to open this up in, in a second. But I just read a Newsweek article today, um, and I've got it open here, about a um, Johnson County commissioner in Kansas City uh, who made a Facebook post. He was, re- he was telling right-wing people to go get guns and ammunition in preparation for a coming war that the Democrats are going to start if Trump wins the election. We're just at a place where there's a, a real, the culture wars are threatening to become more physically violent than they have been. And so this, I thought that the documentary was really insightful and exceptionally timely. And we thought we'd open to have a dialogue about it. What are your thoughts? My immediate thought, and it may be telling of my age, is that years ago, Noam Chomsky wrote a book, he co-authored a book called Manufacturing Consent. And I think that it was saying a very similar thing, of course, about a media that was very much less well-developed. He came up with four things that is taking place that, of course, Mm -hmm. the idea is that propaganda is shaping public opinion and that this propaganda, it's not like there is some sort of conspiracy to do this. And I think that's what's what we're getting with these guys in the documentary. It is just the kind of the market economy that, you know, the more money you can make, the better. But that market economy contains a certain ideology and the idea of a profit orientation. That is the driving force not simply behind mass media, but behind the, the news that we're getting, that it's going to obviously cater to the financial interests of the owners, but also of the people who are advertising, those who are in controlling the investment. It's ironic that I think when Chomsky wrote that book, there were a larger number of mass media corporations, you know, it was in the 20s. Today, we're down to about six that own the major news organizations, and then you add in the social media apps. It really comes down to a very few people that are controlling the mass communications technology. And that itself, you know, the development of these huge conglomerate organizations that are deriving their, you know, this was the thing. I remember Mark Zuckerberg when he appeared before Congress. I can't remember who the senator was, but I kind of had great empathy for him because he said, well, you know, how do you guys make money? (laughs) You know, uh, the answer is very simple, advertising. 
and it may not be obvious that that's what's happening in these media outlets, you know, on Facebook and the, the advertising is, you know, not quite as bad as uh, you get it in the various science fiction, you know, that as you walk down the street that they immediately call out your name in the advertisements, but it's nearly that bad. Uh, that is that each of us is apparently, and that's what's coming out in this doc right. documentary, that there is a kind of profile of who we are. And they really don't care who you are. They don't care. They're not, they're not necessarily trying to cultivate any difference. They're trying to sell you stuff. And of course, what they're ultimately trying to do is sell you. That is, as a consumer, they're trying to sell you then to the, the companies that are advertising with them. You know, there have been so many laws that have been torn down that have just flooded this, that, and that's what these guys are saying, that it's just open to any kind of manipulation. And so that what has happened as a result, and I think it's still true that these huge conglomerates, these large bureaucracies, you know, it's obvious for us in some of the mass media that when we watch Fox News, if you don't happen to be a connoisseur of that brand, you can kind of see through it. But of course, the opposite is probably also true. The whole point of it is that their sources, you know, even of coming up with the news is already re regulated. In other words, there's a pipeline in which all of this is coming down. In addition, you know, the, so the fourth thing that Chomsky, uh, I think his co-author there was, was a guy named Herman, who actually Chomsky credits him as developing this idea. He calls the fourth thing flack. Uh, you get negative response. You know, you, the main thing that if you're in the business of selling stuff, the, the one thing you probably don't want to do this is actually slightly different than we got with these guys' depiction of this, because they almost depict it that what they're going to do, in other words, the people who are going to consume the social media in an addictive style are going to be those who are enraged, that as you become radicalized, if we put it in present day, you're going to create a kind of addiction so that the, it becomes very divided as you're describing it. Now, when I was a child, I'm doing all the talking here, but this is my last point. When, when I was a child, the thing that was the driving force to the ideology of the nation state was anti-communism. Everything, I just saw a little post today, somebody put up these protests, you know, these guys, these old white guys around and they were holding signs up in the 60s, that if you have long hair, you're a communist. Yeah. Uh, everybody was a communist. If you were an intellectual, <laughs> if you were an academic, with the end of the Cold War, there is a, a new kind of radicalization. You know, the, the enemy may be seen as Antifa, or it may be Islam, it may be, you never know what, but and in other words, there's this kind of demonization in which this, dialectic, uh, this divisiveness is propagated. And so once you begin to, to see that, that the very medium itself mm -hmm. lends itself, it has always lent itself to this sort of divisiveness, I think that what you're seeing in the uh, present social media is just an aggravation of what has always been the case. That's really, really interesting. I find myself very often in, in a juxtaposition of selling something uh, to millennials, but having to do it with a group of people behind me that are not of that age group that don't really know how they're getting their information. In other words, I'm selling a, a school as a service because millennials have kids now. Let's let's not forget that. <laughs> I mean, my whole school is made up of millennials that are bringing their children and trying to find a safe place for them to go to school during COVID. Um, oh, do their parents know they're having children? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. Um, and I'm trying to to get through to a, a board of directors, most of whom is in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. How these people get their information 
and how they decide what is true. And that conversation is a very weird conversation to have. Um, For me to try to explain that um, they're suspicious of very slick advertising, that they don't necessarily take for truth everything that they see, it's been a real challenge um, for me. And, And also for me to tell people, that the ways I've been able to be most successful. And I think the reason why the school has done as well as it has is because for a lot of those young mothers and fathers in particular, I do some things through social media. I'll make announcements that way. I'll use it to communicate, but I won't use it for marketing. They know I don't do a lot of marketing and they know I do everything in an authentic and genuine way, but I earn their trust first. But they have trust in a human being. They don't put trust in a big platform. They don't want a communication platform that's going to send them text messages about their kids or automatic pictures. They want my cell phone number. They want to be able to get in touch with Miss Vanjie. They want a person because the people that age have already developed such a skepticism and a mistrust of the big, large corporation. And I I think that's part of what's driven them away from church. They're more, I think that they're more savvy and they understand more what's happening on social media. Not trying to uh, stereotype, Anyone. But I, I do, I do think a lot of older folks are just more naive about what they. Say. Now, just a minute. <laughs> They're more. <laughs> I think of you and me as being pretty close to the same age, Paul. So. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> I was thinking. Uh, I was thinking that we're about that way, but they understand more how they're being sold on social media. And I think something you, you mentioned a few minutes ago was was really and that is it's not in, an insidious thing where the folks from Google and Mark Zuckerberg and the Twitter guy all got together and said, how do we throw this next election to the fascists? Instead, what they said is, how do we make the most money off these platforms? And the way to make the most money is to study people and ask them what they want, figure out what they want, what do they click on, study them more, uh, start to anticipate what they click on, and give them more of what they click on. And so the the real question is always is never is it true, or as you know the Apostle Paul says, is it good? Is it holy? Is it? I'm sorry, is it true? Is it uh, noble? Is it uh, pure? Is it? Uh, I, the passage has left me, but. The real question is, what's this person most likely going to buy? Let's put that in front of them. I think one of the things that was really insightful in this particular documentary was they said that the, the Russians didn't have to hack Facebook to affect the election. They just used the system that was already there. They understood it. And so they they created these accounts and put information on there that people were like that were they were likely to click on and it it blew up so any system that is designed to trick or to manipulate is a great system for lies and for misinformation and for eventually violence to conquer truth is never something that's that's going to look real lucrative to the people who are interested in profit above all else. And that's part of the culture dilemma that we're in right now. And it's I've seen it in churches and in Christian colleges. Who is it that we really look up to? Well, business people. He's a businessman. He'll make a great college president because he understands business. Or he's a businessman. He'll make a great United States president because he understands business, although that's not entirely a given. We're in a very confused time. Nobody really knows which way is up we're seeing radically different types of information based on 
the kind mm-hmm. of stuff that we're most likely to believe. So I can't remember if it was Vanjie that said it or you that said it, but we're becoming radicalized mm-hmm. as people. And it's like everybody's being radicalized a different direction. And there isn't really a way to get together. And I don't know how to overcome it because uh, just like they said, it's not likely that we're all going to delete our accounts. For my, for my part, mm-hmm. most of my friendships are on social media now. And I don't, I don't know that I'm ready to walk away from those friendships because I have some, some that I, I value very highly. Um, and in the, in the time of COVID, they're not going to be easy to replace. No, they're not. And yet I can't help but think, wouldn't we be better off if we had less access? The story of, of modernity is that uh, technology and science and education were going to bring about the new order, the new salvation, the new era that, that you know, they're going to make things better. And technologically speaking, what that meant for media was the more access to information that people have, the more informed they'll be and the better we'll be. Well, we have access to all kinds of information, nonstop access to nonstop information. We're all drinking it out of a fire hose and things are as screwed up as I've ever seen. Just because it's information doesn't mean it's true. (laughs) (laughs) You know, three plus three equals 700 is information in a sense, but it's not true. That's a huge part of where we're at. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because Banji is dealing with a generation. They're they're probably the first generation. Would it be the millennials that are the first generation or their children? Certainly their children, but even the millennials to have grown up with these social media platforms in place. That is, there's never been, they've never been in a world where this wasn't a key part of their social interaction. It's been a huge part of their lives that it wasn't when I was growing up. And I grew up in a time, and you know, you talked about the naive older people. (laughs) I, I probably do fit that category because I grew up in a time when, you know, if Walter Cronkite said it, you knew it was it was true. We kind of instilled trust, and of course, it's during my lifetime that the United States was involved in atrocities, the worst sorts of genocide. And those figures, those public figures that were perhaps most admired, both on the right and left, and there's really no differentiation in terms of the the kinds of holocausts that have been visited, beginning with the Vietnam War, and then we've just been in continual cycles of king-making in the various countries in South America and Southeast Asia. It's never really stopped, and it didn't matter, really, whether we're talking about Democrats or Republicans. They've all been involved in the same process. But I don't know that people of my generation, it would have taken, obviously what we're describing is a kind of webs of deceit and even of self-deceit that is very biblical. You know, I I think that my own development of uh, Romans, the the depiction there of the the self-deceit, you know, we can often just picture that in terms of an individual sort of thing. But of course, Paul is describing the principalities and powers. That is, there's a corporate deceit that is at work. And that as a Christian, I mean, this sounds strange in our day and age, because it's precisely that population that seems to be most deluded in regard to what, you know, reality might be. But I think that a someone who understands New Testament Christianity poses this notion that the way that violence and sin then are aggravated or or even constituted is in and through a lie, is in and through a deceit. And so we're constantly subject to this thing, and we need to be able to extricate ourselves from that condition. I mean, part of the way we do that, I think we recognize how we have been deceived, that's called conversion. 
But I think at, at a simpler level, it's also just a matter of losing the kind of naivete that you're describing that we're seeing there as a part of a. I don't know that it's generational. I'm. It may be that we're caught up in a, at least in part, a generational thing. Mm -hmm. But certainly, we're caught up in the fec effective deployment of various ideological systems that are calling for violence on, on every yeah. side. Well, you know, this week we heard the reports of right here in Georgia, women in mm -hmm. detention facilities here having forced hysterectomies. I think it was through social media that Jason saw something about it and posted something to the effect of wanting to fact check it. Wanted to ask, and a friend of ours actually came back in a private message and, and knew someone that had actually been to the facility and spoken to people and, and protested there and talked about not only that human rights violation, but just the general health conditions of, of many of the women living there. Oh. And it was an extra step to go to. Um, and then on NPR on the way home today, I heard that they're actually sending a congressional committee to the detention facility to investigate. So, yeah, guess it was. Yeah. Um, but it was inflammatory to hear about, and you don't want to think it's true, as all of us haven't wanted to think human atrocities were true. My first thought was, dear Lord, surely not. This can't be happening. And everything in me wants it not to be true. Mm -hmm. And, and asking myself how in the world it could be true. The thing that strikes me, there's no shortage of comparisons of anything that at any time. I mean, everybody's always hearkening back to 30s Germany. As a matter of fact, during every presidential campaign or during every any mm -hmm. uh, administration, mm -hmm. there, there's somebody that thinks that they're Hitler, right? So what always sort of happens is people saying, well, how could it get to the point that these people who claim to be Christians could go along with this horrible thing, this horrible thing of like the Holocaust? And the bottom line is they had been told and believed a set of lies that allowed them to justify all kinds of things. When we as a nation started talking about setting up these camps and putting everybody who was trying to claim asylum um, without asking why they're claiming asylum, without without looking at the bigger pictures, the bigger policies that have happened that created these situations that people are running from, just start saying, we can't handle all these people. We don't want all these people. We don't want to risk a criminal element. So let's just put them all in these cages for however long, make it as unpleasant as possible. When I initially said something about this, this is the beginning. This is how you get concentration camps. Somebody ins insisted that it was an insult to Holocaust survivors to say such a thing. And I said, I think it's an insult to them not to say it because we are at a point where we're about to repeat. And as Angie said, oh, we find out, oh, we're, we're doing Mengelian experiments on them now. Oh, we're, we're mutilating them now. Oh, we find out that they've been going hungry and they live in prison, terrible prison conditions, inhumane prison conditions. Oh, we find children are being, uh, are miserable and they're being, they're in pain and they're crying and crying and crying and being separated from their families. How is it different? I'm not sure it is. I don't know how to, how to say if it's different. Now we've got, and I, it, it's almost laughable, the president who I think the reason he is president is because he understands how to manipulate social media to antagonize his base to the point where they, or to antagonize the people his base hates, I should say. So now he's using rhetoric about changing the, the history that's being taught in schools to a pro-America history. Yeah. Because when you tell stories that put America in a bad light, then that anti-American, well, of course, the, the goal of studying history is to study what happened. Yeah. It's not to do pro or anti. It's to study what happened. We're at that point now. Well, it's just fascism. I mean, there isn't another way to say it. This is what fascism does. It rewrites history. It's based on, a, on lies and manipulation. 
it's got an enemy, somebody that has to be eradicated or has to be imprisoned, or uh, and it's primarily it's it's based on uh, profiting a certain number, a certain few number of people. Just a very scary time. I don't think that there's an answer outside, and I don't know. I guess I don't know how. It's such a big set of problems that I I don't know how sometimes to find a way through thinking through it. It does remind me of one of our previous conversations. Oh, it was about Cheney. Um, was it not called V? No, that was a comedy show. Oh my goodness. Well, this this is real interesting listening for people. By the way, a um, couple three old people trying to figure out. Um, Trying to remember the name of something. Vice. <laughs> you were- Vice. Vice. I see. I was close. <laughs> Except Vice has a kind of double entendre. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And of course, and of course, what we saw in in Dick Cheney and what we all experienced in that era. I'll, I'm going to extract myself from that a little bit. I was in Japan. Yeah, it was. So I, I take none of the blame. <laughs> It's you guys, you know, uh, the just bombing or the, the terrorists that taking down the uh, Twin Towers in New York. It was certainly the ideal situation in which to create a kind of new enemy. But, the, the, of course, the great irony in, it, in that is that the, the people who did that bombing were not connected to the people that were attacked in Iraq. The, the, those two things were not connected. But nobody seemed to notice that. And, of course, it wasn't simply Dick Cheney, but certainly the depiction of him in the movie gets it. I think a similar thing that we're describing, and that is that there, there is this kind of agreed-on fact. Everybody knows what those Iraqis are doing in building their weapons of mass destruction, so much so that even the prime minister of England and other people are saying, yeah, this is just the way things are. It wasn't that if somebody looked a little bit that you couldn't untangle that web of deceit, but it's not going to just be untangled for us without a bit of effort. That is that there are sources, there are people that know better, and and that is the kind of the double thing here, you know, the blessing and the curse of social media, that a lie is sold so easily. And I think that's why, you know, we all saw that thing about the women uh, suffering, being operated on, having hysterectomies by some mad doctor. And that just sounds so crazy. Oh, this is another thing. But of course, it doesn't take much to look into it and to either affirm or disconfirm. And that is the other thing that we have available to us, I think, in social media. We do have information. It is checkable. Yeah. I think that what needs to be recognized is what Vanjie's describing on the part of a generation is that you just cannot presume that what's presented to you on certain social platforms are in fact the case. Yeah, and I I think one of the things that makes it more complicated and you found the language that I couldn't I couldn't locate myself where it's a web, it's a very complex web. You can't pin it on Mark Zuckerberg. As easily as it, as easy as it may seem, or as as tempting as it may seem, you can't pin it on a certain person because it's very complex and it's been happening for a while. What I was thinking earlier is one of the things that we suffer from is that this was happening in the nineties. This was happening in the eighties. Um, I grew up being told about the godless heathens of the Democrats. Why? Because they were pro-abortion. That has been such a singular issue for Christians for so long. What's shocking now is the kinds of lengths that they're willing, people are willing to go to now. I say they, I don't mean to, I'm not trying to other anybody here, but the kinds of lengths that people are willing to go to now to save unborn babies. And the question I want to ask is how many people are you, how many babies are you willing to kill to stop abortion? How many uteruses are you willing to rip out to stop abortion? <laughs> uh, how many children are you willing to cage to stop abortion? There's an absurdity that when lies and this kind of 
demonization of people that think differently than you. Uh There's an absurdity that happens where you don't even notice that you are doing the very thing that you have hated for so long and you justified it in order to stop the thing that you took to be the real evil that you you saw in who you attempt you took to be your enemy. So today I'm in a conversation and um, we're we're considering the idea of actually having children's classes at church again post COVID. And um, I got to be the the honcho in charge of figuring that mess out and and what we would do. It's, nobody else really had a a way to go about it. So I did some research on some things that might happen and decided that what I would do was create a Google form and send it to all our parents and say, Hey, um, we're thinking about a restart and we don't want to reimagine this without you. Uh, can you rank the things in order of importance? What would make you feel safe for your child? Uh, when do you anticipate coming back? Um, how would you like the ages to be grouped? Um, how important is it for you to have your child's temperature taken, your child's caregiver's temperature taken? How important is it for you for the children around your child to wear a mask? All of those things. And I could tell that some of the people around me thought that was a wacky approach. I, I, I could see it. And, and some people kept saying, we're just going to have to pick an approach and go with it. We're just going to have to say what we're going to do, and we're going to have to go with that. And I said, well, you know what? I, I don't disagree with that, but we need to, to be able to make an informed decision yeah. about what these people want for their children because I'm I, I'm not – park in their car even. I'm taking care of, of a little person in the building for them. So we, we got some feedback from the from the surveys and I delivered that today. Everybody was generally pleased with it. And they said, well, how are we going to tell everybody? How are we going to deliver this and explain? Because basically one of the options was RSVPs uh, for them to let me know their kids were coming so that I can make sure I can divide kids up evenly uh, so that we don't have too many kids in a room. Well, how are we going to explain this to people? How are we going to make sure people understand? Basically, how are we going to turn this around and spin this information in such a way that everyone understands what we're doing? I said, I've always been real successful with the truth. (laughs) Everybody just started looking at me again. I, I get that lunatic look. I said, guys, you know, again, millennial parents. I said, I, I think we'll have a lot of success saying we're going to try this out in October. And if this doesn't work, we're going to make changes as we go. And I'm going to communicate with you every week how I felt like it went. And I'm going to ask for your feedback every week. And um, I have found that that kind of open transparent leadership is really something people get behind and that they'll even help. Yeah. And they find it shocking yeah. when it happens. So like a, a relief. Um, yeah. But, but, but to, to, to have that kind of open leadership and idea. So I, I think I see it's bled over into the ways people want me to give information to others, the way people want me to, live the gospel to others? How do they want me to present things on social media? Like they were talking about how I was going to be setting up the website. I'm going to tell the truth in two short paragraphs as best I can and bullet point as much of it because people don't read. That's what I'm going to do. But no, I'm not going to spin this in any way. Now, while they may rail about something else being spinned, it's almost taken for granted that's what you have to do. That that's what you have to do. And fighting against that and going against that. I was I was in the company of the prophets today in a in a very large room of people. And I yeah, you know, I mean no one argued with me, but I, I got the stank eye a little bit from some folks. Yeah, how do you do religion? How do you run a school? How do you do anything without spin? Because isn't it all spin? Yeah. Which is, which is a very nihilistic way to look at the world. And that is, I, I can't remember who it was. I Actually, I think it was a Seth Meyers thing I watched on YouTube today while I was eating my lunch. And he said, this is, it's nihilism. For years, 
I was taught in my conservative education that postmodernism and the abandonment of truth, mm-hmm. absolute truth, is a huge problem. And that's what the folks over there want. That's what the, the liberal elite or the intellectuals, they're all postmodernists. And it's remarkable how much lying and spinning is acceptable in order to promote the truth or to protect the truth and how nihilistic it is. I mean, people may say that they believe in things like absolute truth, and yet the, their lived life, their lived values are very nihilistic and very, very cynical. A reality that, that places profit, this is not different from any conversation we've had, right? I mean, this is the same conversation we're basically always having. And all the people we talk about that we refer to are pointing this out and why it's so easy for me to go back to Wendell or, or to, to run back to some of the other authors that we've that we talk about. That's what they're always saying is a world where profit at all costs is the number one thing only destroys everything around you. It's not, it's obviously not a biblical worldview. In order to protect life, a lot of folks have signed on to a political party whose primary interest is profit and therefore profit at above all else it is baptized and is made into a a tenet of the faith. And now, in order to protect life and protect truth, you have to protect profit at all costs. And you end up doing destruction in order to protect life or whatever you take your your mission to be. I think that what I'm finding is that the, the documentary, it didn't reveal anything new about the problems of sin and the problem of lies and the problem of deceit. It just revealed how much lying (laughs) is being done now and and how our lies are, the lies are being tailored to and marketed to us on a very personal level. I think it was a window into why our society is as, I don't want to say polarized because polarized kind of gives you the impression that there's these two opposite ends. There's two poles, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But I feel like everybody's got their own little world of truth, of facts that they live in. <laughs> so if if a mil- if million people can be polarized against one another in a million different ways, then I suppose that's a good picture of where we are. I think for us at, at Plowshares, my take is that our goal has always been to kind of point back to Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life and say, this is where... This is where we turn for truth. And he's not a Republican and he's not a Democrat. In fact, he, he didn't really get into the, either of those. And that's a place to start. As you're talking, I just today, one of my students did a painting and she had her first uh, art show. I think it was a solo art show at a, at a venue in uh, St. Louis. And she asked me to write a piece for one of her paintings. And the painting is precisely our discussion here. It is a depiction of the kind of the religion of the day. You know, at the bottom, she has on the left-hand side an American flag. On the right-hand side, she has a dollar bill or a piece of money. And then it's lifting up a, a private jet. And on the jet, of course, there are, you know, the people who support you know, the extravagant evangelists, the Creflo Dollar and Joel Olstein, And uh, actually, I don't watch him, so I have a hard time. But uh, Kenneth uh, Copeland, you know, Copeland recently, I think, raised money for his new jet. And of course, they're, they're always, I noticed that Trump was also complaining that the Saudi princes have better jets than Air Force One. And, and so he was advocating that he should be his, yeah, but anyway, the, so you have these poor, oppressed people on the, they're kind of holding up the wings of the plane. And standing on their backs is a guy with a Bible. And in the Bible, he has overwritten the words of Scripture with his own faith. And of course, that then leads on one side to the top of the picture to the present political moment and Trump. And by the way, Jason, I'm telling you all this, 
because she does a collage of pieces of, of various articles, and one of the articles is yours on, who is it, Louis Gig- Giglio? How do you say the guy's name? Yeah, Louis Giglio. <laughs> and, somebody, somebody read it. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, she read it, and she put it into her piece. And so in the the thing that I wrote for her, I quote, you know, your article, quoting him. And it kind of gets, you know, the name of her painting is Whitewashed Tombs. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the idea is what she's doing is really what we're saying. That, And what you said in that piece is that, you know, this whole cross thing, it's a kind of a downer, isn't it? And so we need to spin that differently. We need to sell that. We need to lighten up a little bit. And so what Jesus calls whitewashed tombs is the equivalent, I think, of what Vanjie referred to as spin. But in some way, the spin of things, you know, the, mm-hmm. the thing that in some way makes the religion look good, the whitewash, of course, the whitewash is going to consist of money and patriotism. And it's going to displace the hardship, the oppression, the suffering. And that then is what gives this whole religion flight, you know, metaphorically, is that the whole thing is is a religion of spin in which the faith, the American faith, has displaced scripture. Uh, I really liked your line. Well, it's, it's, it's terrible, but you're quoting Giglio. And at one point in the article, you say, Giglio, you know, he's apparently, I'm just reading you. I don't even know who the, who these people are. So I just, I know this through you. I haven't, I haven't met him, but uh, I know somebody that goes to his church. <laughs> so. So he was free riffing in, in front of the only black person on the stage. And he, he says that they've lamented that the term white privilege is met with such resistance that it's considered as somehow distasteful. So why don't we call it white blessing? So they can more readily accept that, oh, slavery and racism, they've been a blessing, but they were still kind of unfair. Uh, you, You need to just spin it differently. You need to spin the white privilege differently so that it you can sell. And of course, the white privilege I think at this present moment is very much part of the the religion as we have it, you know, that is supporting this administration, this this notion of the faith. In the whole painting at the bottom, she has a little congregation of people, and at the front of the, the thing that they're worshiping is George Washington praying at Valley Forge to defeat his enemies, you know, that God would strike those British, who, by the way, were also believers in God. Here's the father of our nation, really kind of the father of our religion, being adored in this religion. And so it really is, I think what we're describing and is that we need deliverance. We always need deliverance from the lie. Yeah. And the name of that lie is spin. It is mammon. It is uh, zealotry for the nation. But it all then is mixed into what we're calling Christianity. But I'm afraid that that thing, in many of its manifestations, is simply the religion of the whitewashed tomb. And the Jesus pronouncement, of course, is, uh, you snakes, you brood of vipers. Uh, how can you escape being condemned to hell? It's pretty harsh. And I think it's precisely the pharisaical form of the whitewashed tomb. You know, they're the spin doctors of their day. But I think what we're describing are the spin doctors yeah. of our day. Yeah. Whether it's in a church or at the Facebook platform or, or any of those other social media platforms, you know, the advertising is serving and and the the way we're asked to spend things within religious organization and not for profits that household rule that economy mm-hmm. um it's all about whatever economy we are serving mm-hmm. um and we've we've heard over and over again during covid that the reason why we can't 
follow through with certain precautions is yeah. because of the economy and the damage to the economy. And I, I guarantee you, sh should any kind of investigation go further about anything being ethically or neurologically invasive about any of those advertising techniques, something would be said about the economy. Um, it, it's all about the supporting of that economy. Because fallen, fallen economy. Th th yeah. That is the mammon. That is the idea. Mm -hmm. And it's, those things are always about... It's about a sense of security and safety. And ultimately, the point of any religion is there's going to be some salvation, something that it takes to be this ultimate good that it claims it's providing. And that salvation, I think, in, in this fallen religion is a sense of security, a sense of success, promise that you can be successful. If you believe in it, then you protect it. And ultimately, that we're, we're protecting what people are trying to do is protect something. And again, we're, what we've identified here is that they're, what's being protected is a lie. You know, lying, lie, lying liars. Mm -hmm. What's the, Does it I can't remember the quote. Pants um, on fire. Uh, it's probably got something. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was going to go a slightly different direction. The um, by the way, I've never had anybody quote me to me before. It's kind of an interesting, uh, interesting feeling. I've never, especially when the general rule is don't write angry. And <laughs> I know for a fact you are writing that. One. Yeah, I, I, real close. I, as a matter of fact, I can't. I'm not sure I've ever not written angry. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I think you inspired a whole painting. Oh, I'd like to see it. It's uh, it's good. Uh, it's Megan, Megan Kenyon. I've I've uh, interviewed her. Yeah, yeah. I have another friend who's an artist, and I asked him if he would be interested in me. He he's a friend I met uh, through David Rawls, and uh, he does all these wonderful paintings. Um, they're they're kind of I don't know, cubist almost. Uh, some of it, but some of it is kind of pop culture, and some of it is I, I've found some of his pieces really insightful. But he'll paint all kinds of little things that just, and sometimes he paints underwear. <laughs> I also refer, I kind of refer to him as a peaceful painting prophet. And he's kind of like me. We were angry most of the time. But I said, I'd love to interview you for the show. And he said, well, I paint underwear. So I'm not sure why you would want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe you need to let him read some of your stuff. And then uh... I pointed him at some of this. So. Yeah. Well, it was a good conversation. I feel like ultimately the reason that we felt like it was a good conversation to have for Plowshares is because how well the documentary names certain elements in culture right now that are making the lie because of the way our economy is set up that are making the lie profitable. And the lie is as profitable as it always has been, but are, are monetizing it in ways that are getting faster and faster and more and more successful such that right now uh, it, it's tearing everybody apart. The reason I opened up with this, this article from Newsweek about the uh, commissioner in uh, Kansas city, I'm hearing from a lot of folks that civil war is a, as a topic that emerges. I start to get, I don't want to say anxious, but I don't know any other word. Mm -hmm. uh, I start to get fairly anxious that the, what we've called the culture war for the last 30 years or however long is getting ready to be uh, not a figure of speech anymore. The piece and I, the documentary is very insightful. I, the, one of the insights, I think, was that these people who were the creators of these social platforms said, they, oh, they'd never let their kids have uh, access to social media. Yeah, that's important to note, and it's important to note that the folks that the folks that they were interviewing were the creators of it that said were all virtually saying the same thing. Yeah, we didn't think we were that we were destroying the world. <laughs> we really were trying to do something good. We really believed in this, and now we see how how bad it's gotten. Mm -hmm. Can I put in a plug? I think that this this topic in a sense, relates to our upcoming class. And that is that I think that the way that we understand Christianity is not, in fact, to understand it then through the social norms, through the systems of the culture of which we're a part, 
or to in some way accord with that. Right. But in fact, if it doesn't in some way challenge those things, deconstruct those things and give us a view of how the manufacturing of consent, how the cultural values, how, you know, even the religion plays into that. In other words, if we're not able to to deconstruct that, I'm not sure that we've come to the full awareness of what a Christian defense, you know, the word of uh, the the idea of an apologetic, and that's the, the class we're doing, that it really calls for a reworked imagination. And as long as we're plugged in to a, a particular source of understanding that adheres to the norms of our culture, you know, I'm, I'm just afraid that we can never have the reworked yeah. imagination that is called for in the Christian apologetic and gospel. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a good class. Hey, this was fun. I'm glad we got to do this. Yeah, me too. I'm glad you guys, uh, yeah, suggested the documentary. Say the say the name of it again. We'll give them a little bit, little. We'll give them some social media advertising. <laughs> it was the social, uh, the social dilemma. The social dilemma. Okay. Not to be confused with the social, the social network. Was uh-huh. was the a movie uh, several years ago about Mark Zuckerberg? The founding. Uh, how Facebook was founded, which inter- <laughs> I said final word. Interestingly, uh, the book that that movie was based on and the movie itself, Jesse Eisenberg plays Zuckerberg. It, it basically shows how Facebook itself was founded on lies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What we're describing is what George Orwell predicted. He was a little uh, behind. He predicted it would be 1984. Yeah. All right. Thank you, guys. Good conversation. All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.